Um, first, let me uh, uh, show you this. This is a Bible that's been sitting outside my office on a, on a uh, chest for about 18 months. Um, it's, a, it's, an, it's not a leather Bible. It's not an expensive Bible, but it's an ESV. It's, um, it's a nice Bible. Uh, if it, you're, there's not a name in it anywhere. I've searched and searched. But if this looks familiar to you, um, please come get it, because if you don't get it, I'm, I'm taking it home with me. Uh, um, the other thing is, um, as you know, um, I am given the privilege of being uh, off on Wednesday nights in the summer. My last one with you will be the 25th of uh, this month. So we got tonight the, uh, the 18th and then the 25th. But the 25th, the last one, uh, weather permitting, we're going to uh, have outside. Um, they, we're going to cook hamburgers and, and uh, Italian sausages, and, and we're going to have the whole thing moved outside. So it, hopefully that would be a fun way to get rid of me. Um, <laughs> uh, that's the 25th. I hope you'll plan to be with us for that. Um, guys, um, <laughs> you know what this is called? This is called a Bible study. Um, I say that because there is a possibility, uh, a very real possibility, that our discussion of this section of Galatians 4, or this, this section of the book of Galatians, uh, will take us all the way into 2017. Um, it's not that we're going to go verse by verse and pick out, you know, uh, word by word. Uh, some of that will, will, I'll draw your attention to, but it's really because of the issues that are, that are spawned as a result of statements made in this section. So there's just a lot in here, and um, I, I don't expect you to see it. Uh, that's, that's why they pay me the big bucks, you know. Um, um, but it's, um, there's a lot here, and it really begins tonight uh, in verse 24, and I, I, um, I read you the whole section last week, so I'm not going to read you the whole section this week. I'm just going to read verse 24 and, and let you know that we're, gonna, <laughs> we're just going to be plowing our way through. Um, now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. <laughs> I know that makes a lot of sense to you. Um, let me, let me uh, introduce this section. Gang, I, I hope you know this much about the book of Galatians. This, this, um, the threat at this young Galatian church that Paul had planted um, was, the, 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 the threat was that having begun by faith in Christ, they now, um, the, the, being influenced by this group that's called the Judaizers, it was um, the... Um, the, the Jewish party from Rome, excuse me, Jewish party from Jerusalem, um, having begun by faith, they now wanted to um, they wanted to proceed by adding some additions, you know, just a little dab of uh, you know uh, ordinary Judaism just tacked on to the end. I mean, what could it hurt? I mean, just a little bit of. And you just throw in a little bit of you know that circumcision stuff, and then then throw in a little law of Moses and. Um, you know, that, that really couldn't hurt anything. And, and that's um, what we want is kind of a, a new and improved version of Christianity. 
I want you to look over with me real quick uh, uh, at chapter 5, verse 2. We'll get to this in 2018. Um, But verse 2 says, Look, uh, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I mean, there you go. I mean, what can it hurt, they say? Well, Paul says, I'll tell you what will hurt. The whole thing will end up in spiritual bankruptcy. You know, we're going to add a few things, and we're going we're to make this a, a new and improved version of Christianity. We're going we're to have a higher form of Christianity. And what they did instead of doing that, which is nonsense in itself, they, they added this lower uh, rung, uh, higher life through lower life. You know, by, and the lower life I'm talking about, of course, is the additions that they, the pluses that they wanted to add to, to the simple gospel. That was the threat. Uh, that Paul is trying to address at the Galatian church. Now, that's what he's doing here. He's trying to overturn that that tendency to somehow add, uh, you know, to to the gospel. This next section is is an argument, uh, again, designed to, to address that problem, and it is somewhat complex. But he introduces his argument in verse 24, or this portion of the argument, and he says something, these women are two covenants. (laughs) Now, guys, um, as a covenantalist, I'm a covenantalist. Uh, You know, people ask me, um, you know, the word Presbyterian refers to your church government. I'm not a Presbyterian. I'm Reformed. I'm reformed in my, in my theology, okay? I'm, I'm a reformed... Th- now, I'm a reformed covenantalist. Covenantalism is a, is, a, is a way, I mean, simply stated, is just a way of understanding the uh, uh, um, redemptive history. But now, I didn't go out of my way to introduce this to you. That verse 24 says that there are two covenants. <coughs> I relish this opportunity to discuss with you covenantalism. But I have to show some restraint. <laughs> Gang, um, we only have, I only have three weeks left with you. Um, and covenantalism is a course that, they, that is taught in seminary for a semester. I mean, uh, three times a week for uh, 12 weeks, you know, something like that. What, what is that? 36 hours. That's, that's, what, that's what needs to be devoted to this. And we don't have that. And, and really, I shouldn't do that to you anyway. I'd probably just, um, you'd want to stick an ice pick in your ear after I uh, <laughs> took that long. But um, I don't have time to explain it all. But I, I'm going to do, I'm going to give you just a little bit of an introduction to covenantalism okay now you will notice here's here's my first observation the text says um (laughs) these women are two covenants there are only two covenants they're not seven they're not three there's not ten there's just two of them two covenants um, now, guys, I will add this. The, here's how I like to say it. There are only two covenants. By the way, this, this computer thing, it doesn't work. We should give them all up. 
they're awful. But anyway, this is the best, this is all I got. Uh, I'm suggesting that there are two covenants with a capital C. The word covenant is used uh, like the, the covenant that I make with the house of David or the, the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant at Sinai. <clears throat> I'm suggesting to you that those are, that's, a, that's a less technical use of the term covenant. Just like Paul says here, there are two of them. There are two covenants. Um, we'll just say number one and number two. All right, there are two covenants. Not three, not seven, not ten, two. Um, the first one is called a covenant of works. Um, uh, it was made with two people, Adam and Eve. Um, it was based on perfect obedience. And the promise was life. And it lasted two chapters. <laughs> um, the, the, the covenant was made with the first Adam. Uh, and here's the deal. You obey me, you live. You disobey me, you die. Perfect obedience will lead to life. That's the first covenant. That's the covenant of works, okay? Um, that didn't turn out so good. So there was a second covenant with a capital C. And this is called the covenant of grace. Um, the covenant of grace is made with the second Adam, Christ. The terms of the second covenant are obedience. His perfect obedience and the promise is life for his people. He is a representative of a people, and uh, based on his perfect obedience, uh, the Father grants him a people. You. You are the reward of his obedience uh, to, the first, uh, to, to the Father, okay? Um, that is what's called the everlasting covenant it's mentioned in the last chapter of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 13, uh, I'm guessing, verse 11. The everlasting covenant. This one lasted two chapters. This one's everlasting. We're still living under. The, the everlasting covenant made with Christ with the promise of a people on the, on the condition of his perfect obedience. Okay? So there's two of them. Um, that's the first thing that I would tell you about covenantalism. Now, here's the second thing, guys. Covenants are not contracts. Um, and, and let me explain the, the distinction. Um, contracts are bilateral. Now, anybody in here with the business, uh, any, any kind, you know, you, you write a contract. I mean, sell a, sell a house. You, you, uh, you have to write a contract. You get the house, and here's how I will perform, and yada, 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 yada. Those are bilateral agreements. Um, contracts are bilateral. They have conditions that have to be fulfilled. This covenant, by the way, both of these covenants, neither one of them are bilateral. 
um, they are not the, the uh, result of man entering into some kind of negotiation with God. No. They are not bilateral. They are not contracts. They are covenants. They are unilateral. Um, it's the difference between therefore and if. Do you get that? That's, that's a good little distinction. Um, a contract is based on if. If you do this, I will pay this. That's a contract. A covenant is a therefore. It goes like this. I am the Lord thy God. Therefore, you will be my people. There's no bilateralness to it. I'm going to show you that in a minute, but, um, and I think it'll make more sense to you. Um, covenants are unilateral. You see the difference. Um, you know, I wanted to use the, um, the illustration. This is not a very good illustration. But I wanted to use the illustration of marriage. Um, marriage is supposed to be a covenant. But um, uh, there are not supposed to be any ifs in marriage. You know, um, gang, um, I mean, this is kind of a, an aside, but uh, it's really a bad illustration. So just, um, but there are ifs in marriage, aren't there? Um, I mean, I have people look at me and say, well, you know, we, we got a marriage based on a 50-50 agreement. And I think, you're an idiot. <clears throat> a marriage is not 50-50. You know, I'll meet you in the middle if you come over here and we'll have a marriage. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's 100-100, you know. But, I mean, that's why, why marriage is the bad illustration. But the, the, there's not supposed to be any ifs. Unfortunately, there are. Um, but a covenant is a therefore. I am the Lord thy God. There is the, uh, there is the statement of the indicative. You will be my people. Therefore, you will be my people. Now, gang, um, let, let me let, illustrate this, show you a passage of Scripture, and we're done. Um, when, when, the, when the New Testament got ready to uh, write the word covenant, there were two, the, the Hebrew word, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, oh, this is, this is impressive. Uh, no, that's wrong. Um, yeah, that's it. Forget that little line right there. That's not supposed to be there. Uh, that's the, that's the Hebrew term, berit. Um, there were two Greek words available to New Testament authors to translate that one word. There was the word, um, suntheke and the word diatheke. Both of those words uh, were available to any New Testament writer to translate this word right here. Um, you want to take a guess which one was chosen? <laughs> it's this one. D-F-A-K. That's the word that New Testament authors used to translate the Old Testament term covenant. Do you know why? 
You know why they use that word? Because of this little prefix right there. Soon. What does that mean? It means with. And a covenant is not with anybody. (laughs) God doesn't come and negotiate with you for the terms of the covenant. He makes a covenant. So he doesn't include you. This is not a bilateral agreement. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. And any indication that anybody's going to, you know, cooperate in the in the making of it is intolerable um so the 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 greek term that was used is this one diatheke when you when you get your greek new testaments out and and you're going to translate the word covenant that's the one you're going to find not this one but that one was uh is a word that was a a possibility now guys um the, the, the thing that I'm, I hope that you're hearing is that a, a, a covenant is um, unilateral. However, God's covenants carry implications. Um, and we're going to talk about those at length. But they are not the result of negotiations. That's, that's what you've, you've got to keep in mind. Now, um, consequently, the covenant that God makes with God, this everlasting covenant over here, has no ifs in it. It only has therefores. Now, uh, to illustrate that, I hope to your satisfaction, I want you to go to Genesis 15 with me. Genesis 15. Guys, in a lot of ways, Genesis 15 is a lot more important than you ever dreamed. This is a very, um, this is, uh, let, me, let me draw your attention to, um, there it is, verse 18. Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, uh, with Abram. You see it? Okay, what, you, what, you, what is unfolding in chapter 15 is God making a covenant with Abraham? All right. Now, um, this is a story that you've heard before, and I bet you've read this before, and I, and, I, and I hope I'm not insulting your intelligence. Maybe you've seen all of this before, and, and that's very possible. But this is a very spooky, strange chapter. Um. Notice, um, uh, it opens, verse 1, The Lord came to Abram in vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward. Uh, but Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? Uh, you go over to verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So there's, there's a part of the provision that's God, that God is promising. An heir. Um, by the way, this is going to help you understand Galatians 4. <laughs> because you, do you remember from last week, guys? Abraham had, well, he had a lot more than that, but he had two sons. Remember, that's what I think uh, verse 22 says. One of them was by Hagar, but she was of the flesh. 
And that's not the heir. The heir is the one that's according to promise. It's this one. Not the one that he and Hagar cooked up because they began to question whether God was going to keep his promise. Okay, so you see the heir. um, And then, of course, you come to verse 6. And ladies and gentlemen, the doctrine of justification by faith is clearly birthed. Well, it's not birthed. Um, Clearly stated, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. I don't know of a verse that's more often quoted in the New Testament than Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the doctrine of justification by faith. Right there. Paul uses it again, and he uses it in the book of Romans. All of Romans 4 is about that verse. Um, so, So God has promised an heir, and he's promised a land. Uh, maybe the building's burning down. Um, uh, he's promised Abraham a, an heir and a land. And um, Abraham hears of God's promises and he believes them. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, the same kind of faith that you exercise is the one that he exercised. Uh, the, the promises aren't as clear to him as they are to you. <clears throat> But the whole idea of being justified based on faith is right there. Right there. I mean, in spades. And it's developed over and over again in the New Testament. Um, That's why it's so odd when when you try to understand Judaism. Because Judaism has completely missed this. And Abraham is their hero. I mean, he's the father of the faith. You know, he's the father of three world religions. Y'all know that. Um, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But the father, and we are Abraham's sons. Well, if you were Abraham's sons, you'd do what Abraham did, and what he did was to believe in the promises of God, and there it is right there. Okay, in response to that, God says, okay, um, here's what I want you to do. <laughs> um, I know y'all go home and talk bad about me. You know, he's, he's so dramatic. Well, it's probably true. I probably should back off some. Uh, but guys, <clears throat> read this. Here's what God says. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get a goat and a bull and a, uh, several animals and a couple of pigeons and you know, several animals. Do I, have to, I, mean, do I need to read it to you? Um, maybe I should. Um, um, <clears throat> oh, he, he talk, there's the land mentioned in verse 7. And, and, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to me, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, that is Abraham, brought all these to God um, and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. Now, guys, in, in, um, in ancient agreements. This kind of thing was done often. Um, there weren't, there weren't um, attorneys drawing up, uh, you know, very detailed agreements. So a king would come and he would conquer a certain sphere. And, uh, and the king, uh, having conquered a certain region, 
would come to the leaders of the region, he said, and he would say, all right, here's the deal. I'm king now, and uh, all of y'all are supposed to serve me, and, uh, and, I, and here's what I'll provide. I'm going to provide you military assistance. I'm going to provide you protection from the, uh, the hordes. And, um, but here's what I expect in return. And um, I, I expect your full loyalty and your obedience, and I want 10% of the crops, and yada, 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 yada. And they would cut these animals in half, and the two of them, uh, one at a time, would walk through there. And the walking through the animals, in essence, stated, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may this, two halves of animals, you know, I'm walking right, may this happen to me. If I'm a bad king and I don't, you know, provide all the services that I promised, may somebody cut me in half like that, that heifer and that goat. But if you don't obey and you don't send taxes, your tax money, and if you're not good, loyal, this is going to happen to you. And then they'd walk through the thing. And that was a, um, they, they've got a, I think they're called suzerain treaties. <clears throat> Abraham knows what's going on here. God says, I want you to get these animals, cut them in half, and put a couple of pigeons on both sides, you know. And, and then, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty dramatic. Um, don't you think? Can I be just a little bit dramatic? <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him, uh, fell upon him. Uh, then the repetition of the promises in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land. See, there, there's the offspring, there's the land. It's not theirs, and we'll be servants there, and then we'll be afflicted in 400 years, and I'll bring judgment on that nation, yada, yada, yada. As for yourself, you shall uh, 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 go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth <coughs> generation for the uh, iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark. Okay, first of all, it's dark. Abram's in this, this funky kind of sleep. And while, while he's in that state, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. What that's all? What is that all about? That, ladies and gentlemen, is a is an emblematic. It is a metaphorical uh, reference to God's presence, and that fire pot um, shows up, and then, ladies and gentlemen. If you've never seen this before, then I hope you see it tonight. I want you to notice who passes between the half animals. Who, who goes through there? God does. And then notice 
who doesn't pass through there? Abraham. God goes through there and in essence says, if I don't keep my promises to you, might this happen to me? Now, but what would have been the inevitable, logical, predictable next step was that Abraham passed through there and say, okay, uh, Yahweh, I, I get it. Uh, therefore, let me pass through there now because I, you know, I'm going I'm to make my vows to you. But Abraham never passes through the pieces. And you better be glad. (laughs) Because ladies and gentlemen, if he'd have passed through the pieces, he would have been destroyed. The reason that Abraham doesn't pass through there, ladies and gentlemen, is that whatever promise of obedience and loyalty that he might offer, he could not keep. And so... The only active partner in this covenant, ladies and gentlemen, is God himself. If I don't keep my word to you, let this happen to me. Um, That is what I mean when I say that a covenant is unilateral not bilateral. Abraham offers nothing. God is the promise maker and he is the promise keeper. In a covenant of grace that he alone establishes that is consummated in the obedience of his son winning for himself us. <laughs> you know, um, in Hebrews chapter 12, we'll get to it. Uh, the text says, and for the joy set before him, He endured the cross and despised the shame. What possible joy could be set before Jesus Christ? He had everything. What was it that delighted him and thrilled him about enduring the cross and despising the shame? It was because he got... um, A people. Through that enduring the cross and despising the shame, he purchased a people. You, ladies and gentlemen, we, brothers and sisters, are his joy. (laughs) And to tamper with that thing, with somehow 
making some addition to it as if I can contribute to what Jesus Christ accomplished for me, it's unthinkable, ladies and gentlemen. It's entirely unthinkable. Now, let me, let me tell you one more thing because this is going to launch us into an, a, a direction. I'm telling you guys that if you, well, now, you know, I don't like that study of all that covenant stuff because, you know, I, you know, I, got, a, I got a mortgage to pay and I got kids to raise and I got a marriage that's not healthy and I, I want you to give me something that's really practical. You know, just give me something really practical. I don't care about that covenant business. Yeah, it's a bunch of... Well, let me just say this, ladies and gentlemen. I promise you, this thing is about to take off in a direction that is so painfully practical that you're going to be sitting there saying, stop, 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 that's enough of that. I don't want any more of that. Go back to that theological stuff. It doesn't threaten me like that. Because here's the problem, guys. I have been promoting a unilateral understanding of the covenant of grace. Okay? That's what I've been teaching you. The covenant, covenantalism um, is so... At the very heart of covenantalism is this concept of unilateralness. And immediately, the question becomes, is there anything that is bilateral? Do I play a role at all? And if so, what is that role? And and again, in theological circles, one of the big questions is that one that I just described. That one. Um, is there anything bilateral to Christianity? Because the covenant is unilateral. Gang, I said to you earlier that the difference in a contract and a covenant is the difference between a therefore and an if. You bet there's some therefores. There are some distinct implications of a covenant of grace. The covenant of grace I am the Lord thy God, gives rise to a whole host of covenantal imperatives. <laughs> and there we go. We're off. <laughs> I know maybe you don't see it yet, but gang, um, it is this marvelous gospel that speaks of the unilateralness of our salvation, that salvation belongs to the Lord, that from there then says, in response to that glorious gospel, there's a few things I need to say to you. (laughs) There are some implications of that glorious gospel. Um, The covenant of grace has a very distinctive moral shape to it. And that's what we got to talk about next week. <laughs> Let's quit. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will warm the hearts of your people by the, by the beauty of what you've accomplished on our behalf. That, that, that the only way that this covenant could have worked 
was, is to be found in the fact that you did all things necessary for it to work. That you, um, that all the obedience required is something that only deity could accomplish. And deity, deity it is that has met every jot and tittle of the law. All in view of being rewarded with his great joy, his people, us. And might, might the souls of your people rest tonight, not in the fact that they've been baptized, not in the fact that they, um, they live fairly moral lives, but might their souls rest in the great accomplishments of the thrice holy God. Show us, O oh God, all over again that everything that you demand, you also provide. And you did that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we pray, of course, in his name. Amen.